demonstrated the compassion and heart of God for fallen people. He told the parable of the lost sheep and how the shepherd went out and pursued the lost sheep. He told the parable of the lost coin, how a woman of the house had perhaps inadvertently swept away or brushed away the coin off a countertop and then spared no effort in turning the house upside down to find the lost coin. The last in that series of parables is perhaps the greatest, has been called the greatest of all the parables of Christ, and that's the parable of the prodigal or the parable of the lost son. As I indicated last week, it's called the gospel within the gospel. Uh, a Lutheran commentator by the name of Linsky said, it has no parallel in all of the Bible. Uh, distinctively in that parable, the heart of God is revealed. He is like a father scanning the horizon for a lost son, longing for the son to be restored and to return to fellowship. When we come into this particular chapter here in Luke chapter 16, Jesus begins to lay out the implications of what it is to be in the kingdom. Uh, so far, we've looked at a number of parables, and if we're just a few weeks from winding this up. Dr. Young will be back in Romans beginning um, in um, September. And so we're just a few weeks away, but thus far, beginning, I think we started in, in May or we started in June, uh, but we started by looking at the priorities of the kingdom of God through the parables of Christ. We looked at the Word of God, how the Word of God is like seed that is sown and there are various responses to the gospel. Uh, we looked at the priority of prayer, how our Lord has taught us to pray a God-centered, kingdom-focused prayer. Uh, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and so on. Uh, we looked at eternal treasures laid up for us in heaven in Luke chapter 12. We looked at how the kingdom expands and how it grows in Luke chapter 13. It's like a mustard seed planted in a garden, but it grows beyond all proportion. It's like leaven placed into a barrel of meal. It penetrates and transforms the meal. We looked at the consummation of the kingdom in Luke chapter 14, a coming great banquet in which we will be gathered and sit down with citizens of the kingdom of God and enjoy fellowship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And last week we looked at the priority of evangelism. Christ continues to seek lost people. And He does it through His people, His body. Christ, our head, ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning in unrivaled power and glory but he continues to seek the lost. And he does it through his followers, the church, the body of Christ, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He does it through uh, various events, missions, trips, and so on. He does it in everyday conversations around the world as he is calling people to himself through the ministry and the message of the gospel. Well, those implications continue here in Luke chapter 16 as Jesus lays out some of the implications I think you could summarize them in one word, and that one word would be stewardship. Stewardship, an issue of kingdom stewardship. And I'd like to start in chapter 16 and verse 1 and go down through verse 13. Uh, I'll just tell you in advance that next week, Lord willing, we're going to be in another great parable, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Um, there's, I think, some tremendous insights in this parable of the rich man and Lazarus concerning um, eternal punishment and... Um, and so I would encourage you to maybe read that in advance and be prepared to look uh, together with me next week at the latter part of Luke chapter 16. But let's start in verse 1. Luke chapter 16, verse 1. He also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. 
So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? So he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So the master commended the unjust steward because he dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and the mammon. I'll tell you in advance, the little phrase there, cannot, joins two Greek words together. And if I could translate it in plain southern English, it means it is utterly impossible to serve two masters, and two masters are indicated here, on the one hand, money, mammon, uh, an Aramaic word for money or riches. You cannot serve both. It is utterly impossible. You can only serve one master. And our master, the Lord Jesus Christ, has called us to serve Him. And to do that with joy, and to do that with gladness, to do that with a single eye on advancing His cause and His kingdom. This uh, reminds me that redemption, this liberating from sin's penalty and sin's bondage, is not so that we can serve ourselves. We've not been set free from the curse of sin and the penalty of sin so that we can live more self-actualized lives. The only thing I remember from psychology um, is uh, this Abraham uh, Maslow's hierarchy of self-actualization. Anybody ever heard of that or remember that? I can't tell you what it's about, but that's a pretty impressive phrase, isn't it? Uh, It's just that our motivations are aimed towards self primarily, and only after we're meeting this hierarchy of self-needs can we turn our focus outward. Can I tell you that Christ in the gospel calls us to something other than serving ourselves. When God brought His people out of Egyptian bondage, they had been serving under harsh masters for over 400 years. And in Exodus chapter 19, after God had brought them out with incredible, awesome power in ten plagues, and I just say, by the way, it didn't take Him ten tries to get them out. It wasn't as if He he tried the plague of... uh, flies and that didn't work and so he scratched his head and said well let's try lice and that didn't work and so he said well let's try boils that's not what that's about at all it's about God judging the idols of Egypt they had a God called Ra 
the sun god. And what did God do? He turned out the lights for three days, made it completely dark in Egypt to show that He is the true and the living God who has all power. It wasn't ten attempts to get them out. He got them out when He wanted to get them out. But the point is this, in Exodus 19, after God had brought them out by incredible power through these ten plagues, had parted the Red Seas and already began to rain down manna from heaven. In Exodus 19, God says, I brought you out of Egyptian bondage to myself. I brought you out on eagles, eagles' wings so that you might be a kingdom of priests before me, so that you might be a holy nation. God had redeemed them that they might worship Him, that they might serve Him, that they might honor Him as the true and the living God, that they might be a witness to the nations and the idols that surrounded them. When God gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, again, He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make images and bow down before them or serve them. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. The point that I'm laboring to make this evening is that our Lord came, God incarnate, came in the form of a servant, humbled Himself, and came in our likeness, sin accepted, humbled Himself even further and went to the cross and endured the just penalty of God's condemnation against fallen people, rose again, triumphant over death, hell, and the grave, ascended to the Father's right hand, sent the promise and power of the Holy Spirit, not so that we could serve ourselves, but so that we could serve Him, that we could serve a new Master. When Paul is laying down uh, the purest, probably, exposition, the Gospel, uh, which I look forward to Dr. Young's uh, continuation of that series at the end of um, chapter 8 in Romans. But uh, Paul, in, in Romans 6, says that at one time we were slaves of unrighteousness and we presented our members as instruments of sin. But we've been liberated by the power of God through the Lord Jesus Christ that we've been united to a new master. And now our instruments are employed to serve the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. In this wonderful parable, there's some enigmatic language here, some things that are a little difficult to get our minds around, but I think the principal thing that you should notice, first of all this evening, is found in verse 1, and that's the context. This parable is addressed to whom? It is addressed to disciples. The three parables in Luke chapter 15 are addressed to the Pharisees who had issues with sinners and the fact that the Savior of sinners would so willingly receive them and enjoy table fellowship with them. This parable is given to disciples. Why? To give us a picture and to press the call of kingdom stewardship upon us. And notice in verses 1 and 2, this call to stewardship. Uh, the steward was responsible for managing the owner's estate. And he's called to accountability by the owner in the first two verses. The rich man brings an accusation, not of fraud, not of criminal activity, but of wasting and neglecting his duty to manage the resources wisely. The word waste or squander here depends upon your translation is the same word that's found in the parable of the lost or prodigal son in Luke 15, 13. The prodigal received 
part of the father's inheritance prior to his father's death. And Luke 15, 13 says that he wasted or he, he uh, engaged in prodigal or profligate living. He squandered the resources. And so the owner of this estate calls the steward in and says, you've wasted and neglected the resources that I've entrusted you. You've been neglectful of your duty. It's not an accusation of fraud, but of mismanagement, of being careless and unwise with the resources entrusted to him by the owner. And as a result, the steward's dismissed in verse 2. He says, you can no longer be steward. If you could uh, join with me in a little sanctified imagination here, this is the scene of the parable. And I think the Master, our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, wants to impress upon us this concept, this idea of stewardship, that He has entrusted to His people resources. In fact, let me give you three quick principles here uh, lifted from the Bible, not necessarily from this text. The first principle of stewardship is this, that you and I have been created in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and following. And as a result of being created in the image of God, of bearing God's image and likeness, We have been given what the Reformation or the Reformers called a cultural mandate. A cultural mandate. And that cultural mandate is for us to go and to exercise God-given dominion or responsibility. To exercise a God-given responsibility over all of creation under the authority of God. The fall has perverted that responsibility. It's twisted that responsibility. But it has not changed that responsibility. In Genesis chapter 1, the Lord gave them this authority, both male and female, and said, fill the earth, subdue the earth, and have dominion over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, for you fishermen keep that in mind, Uh, the fish of the sea, and everything that creeps upon the earth. Fill it, populate it, and subdue it. Sin has certainly impacted that, but it hasn't changed that. The Bible teaches in several places. Psalm 24, uh, the first verse, that the earth is the Lord's, the world, and everything in it is His. You've probably heard it uh, at various times when um, uh, offerings are given or collected or at stewardship times. An oft-quoted verse, but, but it's still true. Psalm 50, the Lord says, uh, Every beast of the forest is mine. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. After God's people were restored from captivity in Babylon, they were to be building, but they got sidetracked by serving their own self-interest. And the Lord raises up a prophet by the name of Haggai. Can you imagine naming your firstborn son Haggai? He sends this prophet by the name Haggai. And Haggai reminds the people of God, the gold and silver is mine, says the Lord. You think about it for a moment this evening. What do you have that has not been given you from above? What do you have that God, in His goodness and the overflow of His bounty and provision, has not already given you? Isn't that what Paul the question that Paul asked a proud, divided church at Corinth, what have you received that has not been given to you by another? Beloved, that other is God Himself. 
who has gifted us, who has graced us, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Uh, Dr. Young shared with us uh, recently in our staff meeting out of the book of Daniel. And in sharing, he alluded to the story of this king by the name of Belteshazzar. And Belteshazzar was uh, drinking from the, the silver and gold chalices from the temple in Jerusalem. And he was lifting these chalices that had been consecrated to the glory of God. And he was praising the gods of gold and silver. And suddenly the handwriting appears on the wall. You know the story, Daniel chapter 5. No one could interpret it except Daniel. And Daniel comes in and interprets the handwriting on the wall. And essentially he says, this is what the Lord is saying to you, Belshazzar. You've been weighed in the balances and found lacking. And tonight God has taken the kingdom from you and given it to another. But here's what Daniel says to him. He says, the God who holds your breath in the palm of his hands, you've not honored or glorified. The very rhythmic beating of our hearts, the air that we breathe, the rhythm of respiration, all that we have, all that we will ever have has been given to us and entrusted to us by the Lord so that we will join that chorus in glory. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you've created all things by your will and by your will they exist. Stewardship is a kingdom responsibility because God has given it to us as image bearers in Genesis chapter 1. Stewardship is a spiritually directed pursuit. It's a spiritually directed pursuit because God through Christ has redeemed this fallen world. There is not one molecule of this cosmos that has not been impacted and will not be impacted at the glorious coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The prophets look forward to this time and they talk about the lion laying down with the lamb. And they talk about a little child leading them. And, and Micah uses prophetic language to talk about the day when, when, plow, instruments of farm, uh, when implements of war will be beaten into in, implements of farming or agriculture because Christ has come back and subdued all things to Himself. He's coming back and will be enthroned in a new heavens and a new earth. So whatever we do now, in whatever arena in which we work, we labor with the idea that it's all Christ's and will someday be fully and finally reclaimed and restored. One of the great themes that came out of the Protestant Reformation was this. There is no compartmentalizing of life. There is no sacred vocations and no secular vocations. All of life is lived quorum Deo. It's lived before the face of God. It's lived before the face of God to the glory of God alone so that the blacksmith who beats an anvil and the scholar in the university have occupied places in which God has placed them and they labor there to the glory of God looking forward to the day when all will be reclaimed by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Kingdom principles. We've been given a cultural mandate. All of creation in part has already been affected by the coming of Christ and awaits a fuller 
uh, impact at his glorious return. I think it's unfortunate that Isaac Watts hymns, my favorite Christmas hymn. I think I've said that before. Um, maybe I've not said it here, but I've said it elsewhere. In fact, I've said it a lot elsewhere. But I'm kind of getting that age in life where you repeat yourself. Um, I think I've said that before, too. Um, Isaac Watts, great hymn, only sung at Christmas, which I think is unfortunate. A joy to the world. In that third verse of that hymn, Isaac Watts says, speaking of Christ, He's come to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. So whatever we do, doctor, nurse, farmer, lawyer, minister, school teacher, we do under the Lordship of Christ with an eye toward eternity in which Christ is going to come back and fully reclaim this cursed creation for the glory of God the Father. This is a digression. It's off the subject. I know it. I'm telling you up front that it is. But if I understand 1 Corinthians 15 correctly, there's coming a day in which Christ comes back and all that we know of this world and more is fully subdued to God the Father by God the Son. 1 Corinthians 15, about verse 25. And then the Son offers it all up to the Father and says, Oh, Father, here it is. And throughout eternity, reflecting back the glory of the Father and of the Son is a redeemed humanity bearing fully and finally and perfectly the image of God to the glory of God. So whatever we do now, we do it all to the glory of God. Maybe you're familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism that says the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We've been called to that task. The third principle of stewardship I'd share very quickly is that our stewardship involves a wholehearted service to Christ as Savior and Lord. We're called a Christ-centered living now to make Spirit-empowered obedience to God the principle of everyday life. Not just on Sunday and not just for those who are in full-time vocational living. Uh, I read um, almost every day in Proverbs somewhere. And I've been amazed to discover like in Proverbs 11.1, 1, for example, that false weights and false measures are an abomination of the Lord. Um, I pumped gas today. I cannot believe we're paying that for gas, but I pumped gas today. And I tried three times to stop on an even number. Um, I never put a lot of gas in. I, this, this is going to tell you a lot about me, more than you'll want to know. I never put a lot of gas in uh, because I can't justify paying that. <laughs> so I tried to stop it on $10. It went to 10.01. I thought I'll get it next time around. I went to 11. 11.01. I thought, oh, I'll get it next time. I went to 12.01. I could not make that pump stop on even them. Do you know in Washington, D.C., and probably in Tennessee State, somewhere in Nashville, there's the Department of uh, the Bureau of Weights and Measures. They come out and they make sure that when you pump gas 
it's exactly a gallon, not less, and certainly not more. But we hope not less. Um, Proverbs 11.1, 1, false weights, false measures, abomination of the Lord. Uh, my dad came to Christ when he was about 17, and he was working in a produce store in Cleveland, Tennessee. Small town now, really small then. And uh, he, he worked in the produce department, and sometimes he'd have to cut meat. And he came to Christ, and he went to the, the manager's store, and he said, I, I can't continue to weigh this produce and this meat with me knowing that the scales are off. just doesn't seem right. And so the manager said, well, maybe you need to find another line of work. The point that I'm making is, is that everyday life is lived under the authority of Christ. So that if it's a gallon, it ought to be a gallon. 16 ounces ought to be the pound and not 15 or 14. That's the point of the kingdom stewardship. Is that even God is interested in... 12 inches being the foot and 36 inches the yard. God's even concerned about that. The, this parable um, is kind of, a, kind of an interesting concept here because it would appear that um, the, the shrewdness or the cleverness of this steward is really the issue. But I don't think that really is the issue. We've been called to stewardship, but we face... Secondly, a big challenge to stewardship. And that's in verses 3 through 7. When the steward is called to give an account of his stewardship, he decides on this very clever plan. He's going to give big discounts. He still has power of attorney. He still has the ledger books. They've not been surrendered yet. So he goes to Jeff Simons and says, Say, how much oil do you owe? Oh, a hundred measures. I tell you what, you write 50 and I'll close the books on your account. He goes to Tom Jordan. He says, how much wheat do you owe? He says, I owe 50 measures. He says, I tell you what, Tom, you pay me $20, and I'll write on the books, account paid in full. What's being praised here is not dishonest practices. What's being praised here at the latter end of verse 8, I think, what's being commended is the resourcefulness, the resourcefulness. Um, but you and I face a challenge to stewardship, a big challenge. You know what the big challenge is for me in stewardship issues? It's me. It's me. I'm not a big cartoon reader. I used to love the far side, um, I'm, but I'm not a big cartoon reader. But I, I did see this cartoon once, Pogo, that says we've met the enemy, and it's us. I'm the biggest challenge I know to kingdom stewardship. And why is that? Because... My service is always mingled by self. Self always taints what I would endeavor to do for the Lord. And I don't think I'm alone in that, folks. Paul, in Romans 7, talks about this. When I would do good, uh, I think it's verse 21. When I would do good, I, I find another law, and that is that evil is with me. I want to wholeheartedly obey the Lord. I want to wholeheartedly pursue kingdom interests. But I find often somewhat of a divided heart and self-serving motivations. I find the remnants of indwelling sin still corrupt my service of the Master. 
in a few weeks in the Sunday school class I teach, um, we're going to be in James chapter 4. James chapter 4 talks about this conflict. It says that you and I, all of us, every one of us, fight a threefold battle. We fight the battle with our own heart and our own desires. We fight a battle with what's commonly called the world. Simply put, defining life from a fallen perspective. And we fight a battle with someone whom the Bible calls the devil. Diablos, the accuser of the brethren. Satan, the adversary, the tempter, the prince of darkness grim. We fight that conflict. So even in the midst of going to Guatemala or going to Destin or sharing the gospel across a back fence with a neighbor or giving yourself to prayer or to absorbing the Scripture and the ministry of God's Word, we find that there is a challenge to that. There's the challenge of our own heart. There's the challenge of a fallen culture. Scan the newsstands. It's about bodies, bucks, and business. And we find that pull and that allure. We know we've been called to serve one master, but I find that often my heart is prone to wonder toward self-serving interests and self-serving motivations. That's the challenge, to live wholehearted for Christ while battling sin, self, and Satan, to serve Christ only and always, to serve Him with our whole being. That's the challenge, the challenge of stewardship. Let me come quickly to the end of the parable. There's a commendation, which I mentioned earlier in verse 8, the owner or the master commends the steward for acting so shrewdly or so wisely. Verse 8, frankly, is presented an interpretation challenge um, for a lot of commentators. And, and as I looked at this, you could probably summarize verse 8, people taking three different views. Just real quick, one view says the steward, um, what the steward did was not dishonest. By, by having Jeff Simons settle for 50% instead of 100%, some commentators say he was just relieving unjust debt and interest and so on in conformity with Old Testament law. That's one view. Um, another view says that the, the steward was backing the owner into a corner. If I've given Jeff Simons that big discount and I've marked the account paid in full and then Tom Jordan, the owner, discovers that, he's not going to come back and say, look, you owe me 50 more. So he really did this to back the owner in the corner. Here's the third view, and I think it's the right one. What Jesus is commending here is resourcefulness. And he's, what he's saying at the end of verse, verse 8, in praising the resourcefulness, not the dishonesty, he says in verse 8, the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Jesus, in essence, is saying that the sons of this world are often more sensible, more astute in their pursuits of this world than the sons of light are in pursuing the world to come. They're often more focused, more diligent, more eager to seize the opportunity for this life than the sons of another generation or sons of a coming generation are eager to seize the opportunities to pursue and advance the kingdom of God. The Bible says there are basically two kinds of people in this world, those in Christ, those in Adam, the sons of darkness and the sons of light. 
people are called children of, um, of whatever attributes or characteristics they take on. And what Jesus, listen, what Jesus is saying is this. When you look at the world of business and you look at life in a fallen world, you will find people who are very wise and very astute in sparing no efforts to further their own interest. Could we not be just as diligent, just as wise, just as eager to pursue the interest of our Savior, to pursue the interest of the kingdom of God, to advance the cause of Christ and the name of Christ? The commendation of the man's wise, resourceful use of means I think calls us to be more diligent in kingdom stewardship. That's clear at the end of this parable in verses 9 through 13. And just very quickly, I'll wrap it up. Verse 9, I think Jesus is saying that money should be used wisely with an aim toward eternity. Money's not the issue. It's not at all the issue. It's the attitude that's really the issue. There were times uh, my mom um, never read Dr. Dobson. Um, but she spanked anyway. Um, I, there were times when I when I was a kid, you know, and I'd I'd get um, maybe popped on the bottom, and I would say, "What's that for?" And she'd say, "It's your attitude." <laughs> she adjusted my attitude. Moms and dads, you know what I'm talking about? Those attitude adjustments. She would adjust my attitude. Money's not the issue here. Verse 9 says attitude toward the money, how you handle it, what you do with it. That's going to come back again in Jesus' comment at the end of verse 9. Someone asked, uh, Bill Newsom actually shared this with me around the breakfast here, the businessmen's breakfast. Someone asked John D. Rockefeller's accountant how much money he left at death. Anybody know the answer? All of it. He left all of it. That's the point. We use resources now knowing that someday those resources are going to come to an end. We use them with an eye toward eternity. One commentator said the disciples are not to live for this world and its wealth which will fail, but they're to live for the age to come. In other words, for the coming kingdom of God. Verses 10 through 12, resources have a way of testing our faithfulness, however. They have a way of testing our faithfulness. There's a series of three contrasts here which illustrate little and much and unjust and just and so on. I think if if I could just summarize this and kind of uh, get to the bottom line on this. Money and resources have a way of revealing what the dominant motive and drive of our hearts really is. Again, if I could refer back to the Old Testament, God is bringing the people of Israel in the land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey. In Deuteronomy 8, he says, you're going to live in houses you didn't build. You're going to eat from vineyards you didn't plant. And you be really, really careful when you live in those houses and you eat from those vineyards that you don't become full and look at yourself and say, see what I've attained, see what I've done, and you forget the Lord your God who has given you the power, the ability to get wealth. Deuteronomy 8.18, and for what end? That He may establish His covenant. God may have providentially blessed us with a certain station, a certain status in life, and He's given us this status and this station so that we might use it wisely and for His honor and His glory. And there's no mistaking the final application that comes in verse 13. 
No servant can serve two masters. You just can't. You just can't. You'll cling to one, be loyal to one, and you'll despise the other. We have one master, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Might we not use the resources that He's given to us, the time, the talent, the treasure, to His honor and to His glory, to advance His interest and to make much of Christ and little of ourselves. Kingdom stewardship. In a word, is the management of the resources God has entrusted to us for eternal ends. Let's use them to His honor and to His glory. Father, we are indeed a blessed people. Uh, blessed in so many profound ways so many simple ways, and yet um, we find that, that often the, um, the pull of our own hearts, the, the continued appeal of a fallen culture, and even an incorrigible, malignant adversary, Satan himself would often divert us from the priorities of your kingdom. Uh, Father, grant us always the grace of humility and repentance and the wisdom to use for kingdom ends that which you've entrusted to us and to do so to the praise of your glory alone. For this we ask and this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.